All right. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We are in our fourth week of our Advent series, going through Matthew. Um, and as you're turning to Matthew and visions of Star Wars are dancing in your head, let's talk about a movie a little bit more applicable to this morning, and that's Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> yeah, boom, Scott has his hands up already. I knew that was going to happen at some point. All Clark Griswold wants is the perfect Christmas. Yes. He plans and prepares, and every attempt he makes goes wrong. Anything he tries to do to make Christmas awesome is ruined by either himself, his family, or his boss. Does that sound familiar to any of you right now? Everything goes wrong for our boy Clark, all right? And the reason we laugh is because we are all Clark Griswold. Don't hurt me for saying that. But we are all Clark Griswold. None of our plans are failure-proof. I mean, I have no idea when I get home today if our presents will still be under the tree or if the tree will still be standing or if some relative I forgot exists will be waiting in the driveway. I have no guarantee of any of those things. But the story of Advent is the story about a particular plan, about the plan of God. And it's a plan that had no possibility of failing or even surprising God at any point along the way. And it's a truth that's abundantly clear when we unpack the last three weeks. If you guys remember, the first week, we learned how God used one of the worst family lines in history to bring Jesus into the world. All the things you're hoping your crazy uncle isn't going to blurt out on Christmas doesn't hold a candle to the family that Jesus came from, all right? Which is more like the Godfather Trilogy Part 1 as we unpacked it a few weeks ago. Lies, cheating, backstabbing, betrayal, adultery, murder, prostitution. Dude, it's grim. It's grim. What we understand by that is that God works. God is a working God. Amen? God works through the lowly to create the lasting. That's how God rolls. That's how he rolls. And didn't get any better when Jeff took us through week two. He took us through the virgin birth sequence in verses 18 through 25. We assume that the only people in the modern era, that only people in the modern era, have a hard time believing in the miraculous. But what we learned from Jeff from the text is that nobody was buying a virgin birth 2,000 years ago. Nobody was buying that gig. But Jesus had to be born of a virgin to fulfill his role as what we call the God-man. He needed to be fully man so that he could live and die like one of us. And he needed to be fully God so that he could accomplish it perfectly unlike us. That's what we're talking about with that. If we lose the virgin birth, we lose Christ. We lose the deity of Christ. So what we learn, though, is that God works through the impossible to create one possibility for peace with him. That's what he did in Christ. And then we got into week three, which was Dave Dernlin. Man, he took us through the story of the Magi last week, which I don't know. If you're like me, man, it just felt like an old school episode of the X-Files or something. I mean, you got to love Brother Dave because he completely put a match to just any sort of romantic, soft glow movie impressions we have of Christmas, right? Where you got Mary and Joseph wearing the halos. All the animals are like smiling and talking. You got angels like hovering in the background. Dave just went, yeah, I wasn't. That's not it at all. 
I mean, Dave is a guy that used a word like Zoroastrianism. I just wanted to say that so that you guys would think I sound smart. To give some background about these mysterious magicians from the East who roll into Bethlehem like a Harry Potter book reading club. I mean, that's really what's happening with that. And if the story's not weird enough, these dudes fall down, they worship Jesus, give him some pre-wrapped gifts, and then God visits them in a dream and makes a slight tweak to their GPS and reroutes them home a different way. That's the story of the Magi. Does anyone think that any of these events are unusual? Does any of it sound a little strange to you? I mean, you can't not think that, can you? But it's how God works. It's how God works. He sends his son to be born in the middle of a mud hut in the middle of nowhere. And the first people to worship him are shepherds and wizards. I mean, forget the Force Awakens, man. I want advanced tickets to that craziness, right? The bottom line, God works. God works. He turns the wicked into worshipers. But God didn't just deliver Jesus into the world and then go to Florida for the winter, which is how we tend to think of God, is that he just drops us in a place and then he's absent. He deadbeat dads us. And what we're going to unpack today are some of the events that unfolded after Jesus was born. What was God's role in the life of his son after his birth? Because again, we wrongly think of God like he's some negligent parent who like drops his kid off at school in the morning and then forgets to pick him up at three o'clock, right? But what we'll see is that God not only sent his son, but he secured his son in the sending. And let me just say right now that God secures those he saves And there's nothing in this life that creates any instability in that security. And that's because our security is in Jesus, who was obedient, Philippians tells us, to the point of death on a cross. And we just singed about some of that, didn't we? Christ is a life and a light that cannot be destroyed or darkened. If we have him, we have all that God does for him and through him. John 1 says, in him was life. This is John talking about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then he says this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's it right there. That's the black and white reality right there, is that God sent Jesus as a light into the darkness, and nothing's gonna tweak with that. And if we're in him, we're not going to get tweaked with that. So the big idea for today is simply this. This is where I'm going to anchor everything in this morning, all right? It's this. The devices of man have no power over God's sovereign plan. And we think of this word sovereign, we kind of we we softball that word around, don't we? If we're in the church, if we're Christians. Oh, the sovereignty of God. Well, God is sovereign. As we kind of get on with our business, don't we? Oh, but God's sovereign. But what sovereign really means is possessing supreme or ultimate power. Which means that everything that God sets out to do, he can't not do it. So if he makes a plan, the plan gets fully fleshed out, it gets fully accomplished. Every time I say fully, I spit like 10 feet. Sorry, guys. 
R.C. Sproul, pastor theologian, said, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. So we're big on sovereignty here at Substance. We have to be. Because God is in all, God is all. And we have to preach that way. We have to sing that way. Because you know what? None of us really believe that the way we should. None of us believe that the way we should. So let's dive into the text and let's flesh some of these things out. We're in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to pick up with verse 13. You can follow along. We're in the ESV version if you have a device. It says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Let's just stop there right now. What we see here as we're launching into this final uh, chapter in Matthew, kind of covering the Advent story, we see the beginning of what we would say is a tumultuous season in the life of Jesus. Right? So here's the scene. Christmas is over. It's like our week next week. Christmas is over. No more presents. The Magi are gone. An angel warns Joseph to steer clear of Herod because this guy is out of control. All right? Angels are working overtime as they visit Joseph in a dream and tell him he needs to get out of Dodge because Herod is on a tear and he's gunning for Jesus. That's what's happening. To say that Jesus has entered into a bit of a hard season is the understatement of the year right now with this. But what do we have? We have God working his plan through a man called Joseph. And what I love about Joseph, what I love about this guy, who, by the way, never gets anywhere close to top billing at Christmas time, is how faithful he is. I mean, don't miss that for even a second when we talk about Joseph. This is who God uses. He uses this dude that we don't know much about, that comes from a family that has nothing about it that would make any headlines or make the gossip rags or anything about him that would make us go, oh yeah, of course it's Joseph that God used for that. He uses lowliness. He uses ordinariness. He uses the marginalized. He uses the non-rock stars of our society to push his agenda, which is always his glory. Man, remember Joseph's track record. Remember the, the last couple of chapters. When the angel tells Joseph that Mary's pregnancy is legit, he marries her. When he tells him to name the baby Jesus, names him Jesus. When he tells him to take a temporary job relocation in Egypt here in verse 13, homeboy moves. Grabs the wife, grabs the kid, he moves. Joseph obeys. The prophecy from Hosea is fulfilled at the end of verse 15, if you take a closer look, because Joseph directly obeys the one who originally spoke the prophecy when he said, out of Egypt I will bring my sons, with all the allusions there to Moses and the flight from Egypt playing in with that. So what God does is God calls us to believe what he says and act on those words. It's called obedience. 
I mean, do you think Joseph might have been a little nervous and unsettled about packing up the family for Egypt after another dream? I mean, do you think Mary might have thought her man needs to lay out the spicy foods before bedtime at some point? You know? I mean, what are some of the things as we look into the corners of our lives? What are some of the things that prevent you from obedience? What Joseph understood was that his life wasn't his own. What Joseph understood was that his life was under the ownership of God. Now, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not advocating that you follow your dreams, okay? I mean, I had a dream I could fly the other night, but I'm not jumping off the roof when I get home, all right? What I'm talking about is this. Have you surrendered your life to God? Are you obeying the words he's giving you in this book that we've opened this morning? That's obedience. Are you obeying the words that he's given you in the book that he wrote Have you surrendered your life to God? So what we see here as we look into this dark chapter in history of Jesus is we see the obedience of his adopted father. And then we get into verses 16 and 18. Let's read ahead. Verse 16 says this. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem And in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Remember, the wise men had met with him before they found Jesus. Verse 17, then when was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we see the obedience of Joseph contrasted now with the obstinance of this just maniac world power ruler, which of course is King Herod. Because what we're seeing here is we're seeing the unimaginable. We're seeing a chapter of biblical history that sort of files under what we would just call the unimaginable. There's something intrinsic, it seems like, when you read about evil kings, is that when they realize they've been tricked, they just go batty, right? I mean, these guys just lose their control. They lose their mind. This is what happened to Herod. Herod is a guy with a reputation for fits of absolutely nonsensical violence. If you read a little bit into the history of Herod, this is a guy who murdered one of his own sons because he felt like his throne was being threatened. All right? So unsurprisingly, this dude flips and goes on a maniacal killing spree, slaughtering all the male kids two years old and under. It's like a genocide. Someone with unlimited power preying upon those who can't defend themselves. That's what's happening right here. And then Matthew interestingly quotes a verse from Jeremiah 31, 15. This is an Old Testament passage concerning Rachel, who is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, weeping for her children under the Egyptian captivity that Moses would eventually lead them out of. And what Matthew is doing here is he's using this Old Testament prophecy to illustrate Jesus as the new Moses. The parallels are that he avoided death as a child, just like Moses did, and eventually led his people out of captivity, just like Moses did. It's like a second exodus when we think of Jesus coming in and freeing the hearts of mankind. 
So Matthew is drawing a parallel for the people of that time so that they would understand in the way that you're viewing Moses, the way that you understand the story of Moses, this is happening right now. It's like Dave showed us last week from the book of Daniel. The events of the Old Testament were always leading to the redemptive promise of Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus, who would be the second Adam, the new Moses, the offspring of David, the everlasting king on a throne without end. It's all there. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all astonishing. Because what Jesus did was he broke into a broken world. And you know what? It's a world where there will still be murder. All right? Jesus was on the scene and there's still murder. There's still going to be selfishness, greed, and anger. Those things are still going to rule the hearts of men. People will still suffer under the hands of those who don't value human life but use the power they've been given to oppress the weak. It's still going to happen. And the birth of Jesus is proof of how much light is needed, isn't it? And will always be needed. Because when the light shines into the darkness, it's the remaining darkness that gives the light its brightness, isn't it? And that's what's happening right here. And one can only imagine the shock and the horror and the grief and the outrage of that kind of a killing, can't we? I mean, these are visuals that we're familiar with now, aren't they? You guys remember 2015? We're just coming out of it. It's not like we can't relate to this. And we saw a series of abortion videos released on Facebook and YouTube this year that put the conscience of the nation on trial, didn't we? And just like then, there are those who think it's justified. Think Herod had some support when he made the decision that he's the one who decides who lives and who dies? You think Herod had some support back then for that decision as an evil dictator? Yeah. These were senseless killings. And there was absolutely zero justice in the moment. Until we read at the beginning of verse 19, where it says this. But when Herod died. That's all it says. And it says it all. A murderous king with an insatiable lust for power dies. All of his fearful and maniacal attempts to preserve his throne were for nothing. Why? Because God was responsible for giving Herod his throne And took it away when he chose. There was nothing Herod could do to stop this. And you know what? This should comfort and sober you to your core. To think about the implications of this. Especially if you're one of these people who starts losing sleep every four years when the elections roll around. Did Herod think he was some kind of threat to God? Did he think he had something for God? The God whose throne doesn't have term limits? Did he think he was going to tweak with God's son? Someday, those murdered infants would find justice from a man who would be murdered by his own people. Jesus was spared death as a child, so his death as a man would provide life for both children born and unborn. So that those murdered children could be given life eternal. Here's the thing. All is never lost. All is never lost. 
God raises men and women who sacrifice all to be obedient. I mean, look at Joseph. This is a man with a wife with a ruined reputation. A child not of his own. Sacrificing all so that a sacrifice could one day be made for all. All is not lost. Because God chooses men, he chooses women who are willing to lose everything for the sake of keeping the name of Jesus alive. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The obedience of Joseph, the maniacal obstinance of Herod, and yet we see the ongoing patience, grace, and mercy of God. Once again, our, an angel visits our boy Joseph. He's exiled in Egypt, who must be thinking, angel visitations are just the norm for us, Mary, at this stage of life. The angel tells him to return home. Go home, Joe. Grab the wife and kid. Those who wanted Jesus dead are dead. And let's not miss the significance of this statement. The life of the creature is always in the hand of the creator. Those who seek to take life have lives that will eventually be taken by the one who has the power over life and death. I mean, the world has just consistently, if you read any history, the world has consistently staged massively unsuccessful campaigns in their attempts to eliminate God and God's people. And what God prophesies in Genesis 3, if we go all the way back, when God prophesies in Genesis 3 that a Savior would come to crush death, he would do so by successfully defeating all of Satan's attempts to undo it. So that crushing of death was going to come with some pushback is what's happening. So Joseph packs up the family in verse 21. He heads to Judea, but he feels uneasy because Herod's son is reigning. And if the old man was this unstable, you're not putting a lot of faith in the kid, are you? So he receives another warning in a dream, and he detours to Nazareth. And by the way, if you're Mary, you're not super pumped when Joseph wakes up and says, baby... I had another dream last night I'd like to tell you about, are you? You think he maybe struggled with some fear and some doubt again? As the Lord just keeps moving and shaping and shifting their lives? But God moves Joseph again. And once again, Joseph obeys God. And he settles in a town called Nazareth, a place that provided a less than great reputation for its residents, as we read in the Gospel of John, when Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
I mean, I had all these like towns I was going to name off, and I figured, I mean, I'd be insulting somebody here, so I just better like leave it with Nazareth instead of bringing up, you know, Ashland or Mansfield or any of those towns in between. Yeah, you guys are good with that. So we'll just leave it right there. The bottom line is that Jesus experienced no earthly advantages in his 33-year journey to the cross. There was no earthly advantages. Even where they end up settling was a stab against him. He's born into scandal, poverty, and murder plots, and then raised in a sinkhole of a town with a horrible reputation. From the world's perspective, there was nothing even remotely significant or promising about the birth and the life of Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us this. It says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, listen to this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And then it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's just a flabbergastingly crazy passage describing Jesus and a little bit of his outward form and him being somebody that was not going to be a king in the line of privilege, as Dave brought to our attention last week. And then, that's it. You get to chapter 2, Matthew starts in with John the Baptist, and you're like, wait, what just happened the past 27 years? Like, you know, this is like the, this is like the cliffhanger. This is like if the new season of Downton just ended after episode three. It's like, wait a minute, I, can't, I, I need to know what's happening with Mary and Tom, you know? Yeah, I know a few of you guys got that, and I appreciate that. But we're not told. We're not told what happens. And even now, what a somewhat hilariously odd place to end on our series through Advent. There it is, right there. I mean, there must be more to the story, right? Is there more to the story? Well, there is actually. There is more to the story. The rest of the life of Jesus lies before us in Matthew. That's the more to the story. And what I want to do right now is I want to lay out three implications for us as we consider the continuing story of Christ and his place in our lives, his place in the church, based on his place in his own son's life. Because we're not talking about a flippant father. We're talking about a father that was so committed to his glory and his own son that nothing comes in the way of him going after sinners to save them into a relationship with his son. Again, a God so committed to that fact. Number one, it's one of the implications we can get from this is that God meets us. God meets us. Psalm 46 says, He is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in times of trouble. God meets us. But what if? What if? There were a lot of what ifs that came to fruition in Mary and Joseph's story. And yet, God never leaves them. God never leaves them. He met them every time life took an uncontrollable turn. And what that tells us is that God meets those 
who carry his son in their hearts as their most valued treasure. Joseph and Mary were never in a place that God had abandoned them. God met them at every point, and he meets us. God meets us. He meets his children. He's committed to. God not only meets us, but God moves us. He moves us. God is not idle. We're idle. Like, I'm living in a season of, of some idleness mixed with, like, qu- quite a bit of food consumption. There's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of that going on right now. I know for none of you, but for me, as I'm, like, trying to suck it all in right now, like, that's happening, right? But God is not idle. He makes us wait. Yes, but he's no less on the move. The Bible is the story of a God who never takes any writing breaks. He is always on the move. But we become scared, don't we? We become outraged when we can't see him on the move. Like we capac- like we possess the capacity to understand the mind of someone who spoke light into existence. We're supposed to understand his ways and his thoughts. Well, the Bible very clearly says his thoughts and his ways are not ours. And at times, he he moves us even locationally, like he did with Joseph and Mary. He removes our sense of comfort and familiarity and thrusts us into fragility. But he does it as a way to move us spiritually and closer to him. So sometimes it feels like we're being pushed away. We're being pushed further from the things that we feel like are giving us the things that we need and the comfort and the security that we need. And what God is saying is, actually, it's just the other way around. I'm pulling you from those things that you believe are offering you something that has no lasting stability. Just get closer to me. That's what he's doing. So God moves you to do that. Will you see it that way? Will you pray for it when you're in those moments? So God meets you. He moves you in three God makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. And we need to pause on that. Think about that. God makes no mistakes. God has never made a mistake. I mean, besides your spouse, who can you say that about? Besides your boss, who can you say that about? Besides your friends, who can you say that about? Beside your elected officials, who can you say that about? Beside yourself, you guys get this exhausting point that I'm making right now. You can't. You can't say that about anybody else but God. Do you think that Joseph may have struggled with doubt in the midst of this craziness that, again, when you read the passage, it sounds like it lasted four days? This was years Do you think Joseph may have struggled in those intervening times when he wasn't hearing a voice from the Lord? When the dreams just weren't coming like they once did? Do you think he may have struggled with a little bit of doubt? Yeah. I mean, at one point, remember. Remember what we're talking about here. This is a dude that was up against the entire Roman Empire. Who's gunning for his adopted child. You think everything was clear in Joseph's head? 
Is everything ever clear in our heads? What are you facing right now? What are you facing as the new year comes that you don't think God will meet you in and move you through? He makes no mistakes. Man, let this sober you. Let this give you a sense of hope and peace as you face the same uncertain new year that we all face. You have someone else you want to go all in with? You have someone else that you want to go all in with? I mean, do you want me to go through that obnoxious list again that I just did a minute ago? There is nobody else. The question today, the question for 2016, is what will we do with the life of Jesus? And most importantly, do you have life in Jesus? That's the question. And what we don't want to do, what we have the tendency to do, as we read about characters that we tend to separate ourselves from, Herod being one of those, what we don't want to do is put Herod in some untouchable category. Right? We put these people that do these unimaginable acts of terror and violence, and we say, well, that's them over there. He was simply a dude that refused to worship the king. That was Herod. He was someone who was committed to his own rule and rank. He was someone who was committed to his own career path. He was someone who was committed to his own hopes and dreams. He was someone who was unwilling to bow. He wanted to remove the life of Jesus from his own. And boom, he failed. As will we. If not in this life, then in the next. And so for some of you here, as you face 2016, and it's daunting. I mean, some of you guys are just like, man, you know, the ball's going to drop on New Year's. I'm stoked. I can't wait. It's going to be the party of my life. Getting into 2016, it's like I wait all year for it. Others of you are like, yeah. What it reminds me of is unmet expectations that I had this year. What it reminds me of is tragedy that I faced this year. What it reminds me of is sickness that I'm still in the middle of. What it reminds me is uh, is of financial difficulties and struggles that I, I don't have an answer for. They don't just magically flip and refresh when 2016 hits. What I'm reminded of are relational struggles that January 1st doesn't improve on. And what we forget in those moments is that we have a God who doesn't forget. We have a God who doesn't forget. We have a God who doesn't lie. We have a God who wants our life. Not all of you guys know Melissa and I's story, um, and we don't have time to get into all the gory details of it. But God moved us here to Ashland five and a half years ago on a wing and a prayer. We had no idea how all this was going to shake out. Here's the thing, we still don't. All the way across the country, family's still back in California. Some of them are here with us this morning. All the way here, the minute we landed, it all started unraveling. 
And it was an unraveling that was clearly put into play by a sovereign God. And so when we look back on all the unraveling, when we stand here today and we think, what about the unraveling today? Does the unraveling ever stop? Like, is God meeting me? Because it feels like he's not there. I mean, is God going to move me again? I mean, is he going to keep shifting me? Is he going to take away every ounce of familiarity that I have? Because I hate that. And yet he does that. And yet he's committed to his glory in that so that I would be more fully, fully enveloped in his love, trusting him, believing the words that he has given me in this book. I forget that daily, but he doesn't forget. There was never a point God wasn't completely in control. There's never a point in this book that God is not completely in control. Joseph had no plan. Consider that. Joseph had no plan. He had to wait. He had to have faith. It wasn't blind faith. Because his faith was in the faithfulness of a God who never fails. A God so committed to the glory of his son and our worship of him. And he's not any less committed this morning. So my encouragement to you and to me, as we move out of another Christmas season, as we move into another year that we can't see inside and outside of at all, my encouragement to you is resolve, if you make resolutions, resolve to repent, to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to take these things that I can't fix and that I can't keep owning And you'll see that he meets you there. And you'll see that he sovereignly, lovingly, graciously moves you. And you'll see that he's a God that is infinitely trustworthy. Let's pray.